Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. ...of God and how we can be helping each other imitate God's character too. And so as part of this journey, last week we kicked off this new series of messages, this reflective series that's that's got us taking a look at some stories from the Old Testament portion of the Bible, some stories that are actually famous, at least among people who have been exposed to church very long. Many of them are, are famous outside of church circles in popular culture and all of that kind of thing. But these stories, while they're well-known, they can often be misunderstood. In fact, some of the stories that we're talking about in this series, most of the stories we're talking about in this series, these are stories that on, on some level we teach these to our children in church in Sunday school. In fact, the reason we've called this series Flannel Graph Favorites, and I know that's a term that may be unfamiliar to some of you, but it's because this beautiful canvas right here. This this is a flannel graph. It's just a board that's covered in felt, but this has been a visual aid storytelling teaching tool that Sunday school teachers have been using for decades to be able to familiarize children with the stories of the Bible. In fact, many of you have memories of your own of having grown up. You have a, you can still remember what it looked like to be in a Sunday school class learning about some of these ancient stories on the flannel graph. Many of you have memories of teaching using the flannel graph. And all of that effort, all of that investment in children was so, so valuable, so important, so appreciated and honored and critical for our churches. But what we mentioned together last week as we kicked off this series is that no amount of flannel graph storytelling can take away some of the challenge that's present in some of these stories. In fact, most of these stories that we're talking about, many of these Old Testament stories, these are not stories that were written for children, all right? Like, if you've spent much time with the Old Testament Scripture, you will know pretty quickly that there are lots of parts of the Bible that we don't want our children to read until they're a little bit older, right? These are stories that were written for the adult mind. These are stories that were written for grown-ups, people who were capable of thinking in the abstract. These are stories that were written for people who can pick up on symbolism, who can see when one thing that's in a story represents something else or recalls something else. These are stories that are written for people who are pondering big questions about life and about spirituality, which is why we're going back and revisiting these stories. Because I know there's some of you who have never engaged any of these stories before. You're hearing some of these for the very first time, and I'm thrilled that we're going to get the chance to share these with you. There's some of you who, some of these stories you haven't engaged since you were very young, and it's kind of a distant memory. Maybe the details are a little blurry, and the things that you do remember are kind of hazy for you. And then some of you need to reconsider these stories, maybe for the first time as an adult, because what could happen is if you don't 
consider or reconsider these stories through an adult lens, you can be missing out on some incredibly profound lessons about the character of God that ancient people worked very hard to pass down to you and me. And so this summer, we're looking at nine of those stories. I chose nine stories for us to work our way through and reflect on together, which means there's a lot of Old Testament stories we're not going to get to this summer. But what we've been doing for these first two weeks is we're addressing a couple of challenges challenging stories that are found in what you might call the Bible's introduction. Now, there's not really an introduction, you know, that's separated in the front of your Bible, but Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the first 20% of Genesis or so, these really serve as a, an introduction to the story of the people of God. And these 11 chapters can be incredibly challenging to read. They can be difficult chapters to understand. And so much of the difficulty stems from what you're expecting to find when you come to these stories. And so last week we talked about one that's notoriously challenging. It's one that's well known. It's been depicted on the silver screen multiple times, the story of Noah and the ark or Noah and the flood. And I got to tell you, when I was a child growing up around the flannel graph and having the teachers tell me that story, the story of Noah and the ark and building this big boat that all the animals could get on, this was one of my favorite stories. I was fascinated. I grew up in, in, on the Gulf Coast and grew up close to a lot of boats and stuff, and so I was fascinated by the idea of a boat that would be big enough to hold a pair of every type of animal on the planet and keep them safe through a global flood. That sounded incredible to me, but as I started started growing older, and as I started thinking more critically, and as I started going through different subjects at school, I started to kind of question and reimagine the feasibility of a boat that could hold two of every type of animal in the world. And I started kind of reconsidering the physics that were involved in a worldwide flood. And I started philosophically reflecting about the fate of the people who weren't on the boat, the people who didn't make it onto the ark. And what I noticed is that as I started to get older and look back on that story that I'd learned as a kid on the flannel graph, I noticed I had a lot of unanswered questions. I had some disturbing questions about this old story. And what I've come to understand through more time in study more time in reflection, growing in my relationship and trust in God, what I've come to understand about the nature and the purpose of the Bible includes this, that these stories, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, these first 11 chapters of the Bible, these stories were not recorded to address our questions about biology. And these, these stories were not written down to answer our questions about all of the details of human history. And these stories were not written down to answer our questions about geology or earth science. These stories were written down to address questions about theology. These are stories that are meant to tell us something about God. These are prehistorical stories that were passed down from generation to generation to generation to explain some spiritual realities. These stories, even though they have people's names in them many times, these are stories about 
God. Which is why last week, when we were studying through the flood story together, we endeavored to try to turn our attention away from Noah, away from Noah's family, away from what the people were doing, and turn our attention toward what God was doing. Because the point of the story is to tell us something about God. Which is true about our story to get today as well. Today, we're looking at another infamous story, a story that's pretty well known, but it's okay if you've never heard of it before. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. And this is a story that is connected to the Noah story, the flood story from last week. You see, after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, it's recorded that God had two important conversations with Noah. The first thing God said to Noah's, Noah and his wife and their sons and their sons' wives, they gave them, God gave him this charter, this commission, this assignment, and said, be fruitful in number, and uh, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth, okay? So it was their responsibility to multiply, to be able to inhabit the earth after the story of this flood. And then the second conversation God has is a promise. God makes a promise that never again is God going to destroy all of humanity because of disobedience. This is God saying, I'm changing my strategy. I'm hanging up my bow. I'm taking off my warrior persona. This is God saying, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. There's an, an, another kind of a repetition of this a chapter earlier where it doesn't even specify flood. It's just God saying, I'm not going to destroy everybody anymore. I'm taking a different tack. And so the people had a job to do. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. And, and God had a promise to keep. In chapter 10, the chapter that's in between that conversation and the story of the Tower of Babel, chapter 10 records that all of the descendants that started to be produced from Noah's family tree, all of, at least all of the men who were leaders of the families. And it goes through grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren from Noah and his wife. It tells all this story. And three times, three times in chapter 10... It says that Noah's descendants spread out into their territories by their clans and within their nations, each with their own language, all right? Three times it mentions this. It talks about how they're actually spreading away from one another, they're continuing to inhabit more of the earth, and they're developing their own language, which makes a question come up when we start chapter 11 and verse 1 says, now the whole earth... The whole world had one language and a common speech, all right? Chapter 10 just got telling us, got done telling us that everybody is spreading out and developing their own nations, their own civilizations, their own cities, and their own languages. And then chapter 11 says everybody's got one language and a common speech. Now, don't let that throw you. Let it clue you in. This is a hint for us. This is a hint that tells us that we're not dealing with a simple historical recording of the events. We're reading a story that has been handcrafted to teach us something. We're reading a story that has been intentionally designed to pass a message on to us. And I realize that based on your history with the Bible, that may be a disconcerting idea, that maybe the story we're about to read has been manipulated, has been orchestrated to try to teach us a lesson. But I want to calm your fears and your nerves there just a little bit by reminding you that Jesus did this all the time. 
I mean, how many times did we hear Jesus start a teaching with something like, there was a man who had two sons? Or a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on the desert road between those two cities. Jesus frequently would utilize a story that sounded like it could be based in real historical events, but that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was to teach you something about God, and that's what's happening here in Genesis chapter 11. And so our assignment, our task, the challenge that's before us is that as we read this story here in just a minute, let's Let's not get so caught up. Let's not get lost in the details about what the people in this story are doing. Let's focus our attention on what God is doing, okay? Here's the story. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 2. It says, as people moved eastward, they found a plain, not an airplane, a flat plain. They found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone, and they used tar to hold the bricks together, tar for mortar. And then they said, this is their vision, okay? This is their dream together. The people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And I'm going to stop here and just change the scene so that you can imagine what's going on here with, here with the tower and the city that the people are building. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And the Lord said, in verse 6, the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. They won't stop there. They'll keep pushing. They'll keep going. Confuse their language so that they will not understand one another. And so that's what happened. The Lord scattered the people, scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why that place is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That's it. That's the whole story. It's not very long. doesn't have a whole lot of detail to it. We can look at it in a couple of pieces. We can look at the first half of the story and find that the people came up with this dream, this idea that they're going to build a city and a tower in the interest of making a name for themselves. They're going to try to focus attention on themselves. And oftentimes, this story gets interpreted as if the problem with this plan is that the people are just prideful. 
Like they're trying to erect a monument that would help people for generations to remember that they existed. If we build something tall enough, if we build something strong enough, if we build something durable enough, then people will know our names long after we're gone. Oftentimes, that's the story. In fact, that's the story or the interpretation of this story that I heard growing up. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be important. They wanted to be known. And we see this a lot in our culture, right? I mean, we understand that. We get that we're in kind of a unique period in history, really. In all of human history, this may be the first era when people can be famous just for being famous, right? I mean, in history, when you think about all of the names of the people that you know from 100 or 200 years ago, those people are famous because of what they accomplished or what they did that was negative. They did something that put their name on the map. Nowadays, there's lots of people in our culture whose names are in the common vernacular, their household names, just because they decided they wanted to be a household name, you know? And that's, that's different. We see that a lot. But I don't think that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 11. I don't think that's what the people are pursuing. I don't think this story is talking about pride and self-promotion. If you look back at verse 4, just the, the verse where the people are talking about the idea that they've hatched together, here's what, it said, what they said. They said, let's build, our, build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, don't miss this clause, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And this is what it really comes down to. This is what they're concerned about. This is what they're worried could happen. They wanted to build something that was going to keep them together. They wanted to build something that was going to be a centralizing point for them, something that was going to consolidate their community. They wanted something centralized that would keep them gathering, keep them connected, keep them in community, and it wouldn't hurt if it was tall enough that it was a little bit intimidating to anybody else who showed up with any kind of ideas about trying to cause problems, right? I mean, if you're some foreign army and you come in and you want to attack the people at Shinar and they've got this huge tower with people throwing heavy stuff off at you from the top of it and you can't get to them to stop them, then that's going to be intimidating, right? And so they're thinking to themselves, we can build this city. We can build fortified walls. We can build a tower. We can build this place that's going to keep all of us together and safe. I don't think that what they're concerned about is notoriety. They're not so concerned with who's going to come much later and know their names. They're concerned about security. There's safety in numbers. And so they wanted to consolidate. They wanted to get organized so that they could face all of the challenges that came their way together. And I got to tell you, it kind of sounds noble. Sounds like a pretty good idea, pretty smart. In a world full of danger, in a world full of risk, unknowns. I mean, this sounds cooperative. It sounds peaceful. It certainly doesn't sound very disagreeable. Doesn't sound sinful. But there's something about this plan, something about this plan that doesn't sit right with the Lord. In fact, in the second half of the story, we're told that the Lord came down to the city to see the city and to see the tower. And some, are, some academics will tell you that just the idea that the Lord came down was kind of an ironic, funny 
about how the tower must not have been that impressive if God had to come down to see it, right? Like, if God couldn't see it from way up there, how big a tower was this? You know, God comes down to see the city and the tower that the people were building, and after seeing it, there's this discussion that happens among the heavenly beings, and God uses this us language, like the God talks in the plural This isn't the first time this happens, though. Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make humankind in our image. God is is in community. God is communicating. This is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit talking together. This is God metaphorically being portrayed as a high king who's got attendants in his court who are ready to carry out his wishes. And what God says in this heavenly court is, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't understand each other. And the thing is, if you read that passage, if you read that verse, just what's on on the screen, those two verses, you could get the idea that maybe God feels threatened by human progress. You could get the idea that maybe God is a little bit panicky a little bit anxious that the humans might become too powerful, too capable, too successful. But I want to invite you into a different reading of this text this morning. I want to challenge you to read this with a different perspective because, see, I'm convinced that God's not panicked at all. And I believe deep down that there's nothing that threatens God or makes God anxious. But once again, just like we saw last week when we looked at the flood narrative in chapter 6, and the time when all of humanity was heading in the wrong direction, I think the same thing's happening here. God is grieved. God's not panicked. God is sad. Grieved that the humans are heading in the wrong direction. You see, when God looks down at the city and God looks down at the beginnings of this tower that's being built, God sees that the people are trying to be their own source of security that they're trying to create the answer to their own fears. They're trying to make their own way in the world. They're trying to face the world on their own instead of saying, God, would you help us? Instead of trusting God for their strength, I believe the problem that God sees when God comes down to see the city and the tower is not so much about sin, it's about self-reliance. The problem is that God sees the people pursuing their own security and God recognizes that's a fool's errand. That's futile. That's never going to work. You're never going to feel safe enough. You're never going to be able to build the city big enough. You're never going to be able to build the the tower tall enough. The walls will never be thick enough or strong enough or high enough for everybody in the city to actually feel safe and secure. You're not going to be able to accomplish that. And so God intervenes in a way that protects them from themselves. It's kind of a funny sight, really. A comical sight that the writers and the Lord have built into this story for us because you can just imagine two co-workers who have been working with the bricks all day. They've been they've covered in tar. They've got this stuff all over them. They're dirty, hot, and sweaty. And one of them says, okay, hand me another brick. And he reaches his hand back and there's no brick that shows up. Okay, hand me another brick. And, and the, the co-worker behind him doesn't have any idea what he's saying. And they've been working together for days 
working together for months on this project, and suddenly they can't understand one another. Suddenly their language gets confused, and pretty soon the project gets abandoned because of the world's biggest communication breakdown. But remember, the story's not about the people. Our task is to reflect on what does this story say about God? And I think this is a story that's highlighting God's compassion it's obvious that building the city and building the tower was not what God wanted for the people. It's not, it, this wasn't God's will. But what we see here is that when the people diverge from God's will, when they go in a different direction from what God wanted, God keeps God's promise not to destroy. The promise that was made two chapters ago, I'm hanging up my bow, I'm taking off my warrior persona, God keeps that promise. I'm not going to destroy them. God keeps that promise, and furthermore, God saves them from themselves, saves them from their own mistakes. It's not that God didn't want people to have security. In fact, it's not that God didn't want people to have a powerful name. God doesn't have a problem with that. The way I know is because if you keep reading just a few more verses and skip over into chapter 12, you'll find God calling a specific person, a man named Abram, inviting him to follow him in a lifetime of trust and faith. And here's what God says to Abram. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will, what's it say? I will make your name great. People said, let's build a city and a tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. That doesn't bother God in the slightest. But what's missing is the God component. What's missing is God's involvement, God's leadership, God's direction, God's dream. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great, and then you will be a blessing. He's going to say, you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world if you let me make your name great. See, God's not threatened by people who have a great name. God's not threatened by people who have accomplished something. God's not threatened by someone who has reached higher than they were capable of dreaming on their own. But God knows that no human will ever have a great name without God's participation. That any project that is designed or that's undertaken to try to achieve something apart from God is destined to fail. God knows that human cities are destined to fail. God knows that human towers are destined to fall. You know, if you go over in the region of the world where these writings were first produced, if you go over to the area around southern Iraq and the Mesopotamia area, Archaeologists are digging all over the place and finding ancient ruins. And you know what they'll do? They'll dig up and they'll find the ruins of a city and then they'll dig a little deeper. And you know what's under there? Another city. Another town underneath. Because the first one failed, got swallowed up by the desert, and then another one came and they built on top of it. And then they built another one on top of that. This is what human cities and towers do. God knows that. But God has the ability to make something important out of someone inconsequential. 
God has the ability to take someone small and to make them big. God has the ability to protect the vulnerable and provide real security. God can elevate the lowly. It's God's involvement, God's direction, God's participation that makes the difference. And this is what we've been singing about. The song we sang right before I came out here to share this message today, everlasting, we said, everlasting. What else in this world is everlasting? Everlasting, your light will shine. Do you remember the words? Your light will shine when all else fades. Everlasting, your glory goes beyond all fame, it says. This is our faith story. This is our conviction about God. And this is the story that people from ancient times were trying to tell us. When the people of Shinar started to build this city and this tower, they didn't include God in the plans at all. They made no room for God in their grand vision. And because of that, their plan was doomed to fail. And so God put a stop to it so that they wouldn't be out of his plan. But when we make room for God in our plans, when we invite God into our story, when we recognize how hopeless and helpless we are without God's participation in our lives, then when we make that space, it invites God to move in and do what only God can do. It's about answering God's call, leaning into God's dream instead of our own. You know, I, I, my, I think I've mentioned to, from the stage here before that my family's been watching this series, The Chosen, together. It's a really incredibly done cinematic presentation, three seasons so far, telling the story of Jesus' life and ministry. If you haven't found The Chosen yourself, I highly encourage you to go and check it out. But um, one of my favorite things about watching this series, and, and I, I knew this from studying the Gospels anyway, but just seeing it, you know, it's like it connects with you in a different way. One of my favorite parts is seeing when Jesus calls people to be his followers who themselves didn't feel important. Jesus is constantly inviting people to come and be his followers who feel like they, they, they already feel like they're on the margins of society. They feel like outcasts. They feel worthless. They feel like damaged goods. They feel like they are a problem, like they don't have anything to offer, anything to contribute. And Jesus keeps going to these people, tax collectors, people that nobody else wanted to invite or include or eat dinner with. And people keeps going, Jesus keeps going to them and saying, come with me. And then they start following Jesus and they become part of this circle of people. They become part of this group and suddenly they've got a purpose and they've got a mission and they've got tasks to do and they've got worth and they're making a contribution. And suddenly, suddenly, they're worth their entire life seems worthwhile and valuable in their own eyes. And you know, the only thing that changed, the only thing that changed is that Jesus showed up. One of my favorite quotes in the whole series is this lady who says, I don't know what to tell you about him, but I can tell you this, I was one way and now I'm a different way and the only thing in the middle, the only thing that changed was him. This is the story. 
And it's about inviting Jesus to be a part of our lives. It's about asking God, saying, let, let, me, let me follow your plan for my life rather than trying to make my own plans. And for all these centuries, the followers of God have been trying to pass this story down. They've been trying to say, God doesn't want you to waste your effort. God doesn't want you to waste your life choosing to follow a dream and work on a project that's not worth your time. God doesn't want you to waste your life. And so you look at some of the writings of some of the, the people who wrote early poetry and songs about God. Psalm chapter 84, verse 10, the writer says, Better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather have a life that was one day long and I was connected to you than have a thousand days where I was disconnected. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked, the psalm writer says. And then goes on and says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. This writer is saying, God wants your good. God wants to turn your life into something bigger than you can do on your own, but you've got to make that space. You've got to pursue God's desire. You've got to ask for God's direction. Another wisdom writer in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 16, said, Commit to the Lord whatever you do. Whatever you do, commit it to God, and He will establish your plans. Some of you remember it being translated, He will make your paths straight. And here's the deal. Room in your life. God wants to be a part of your plans. God wants to, God wants to take over your plans. But God wants your name to be known for something important. God wants your name to be remembered because of your faithfulness because of the way that you walked with God. God wants to give you a name that means something. And the invitation is always there.